This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where company founders, entrepreneurs, and cutting-edge thinkers drop in from around the globe to share startup stories, insider insights, and hard-earned success lessons. Now, here's your host, a woman who mastered business by placing heels on the ground all over the world, having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, and who wants you to build your best business future, Allison K. Summers. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation. I am so grateful that you have given us the gift of your time and hopefully we'll give you the gift of knowledge. We are heading to Saudi Arabia. I am so excited because we're speaking to one of the most influential Arab women and she has gone from a median icon to an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about being a co-founder, lessons she's learned from business. So I would love to introduce you to Muna Abu Salaman. So Welcome to the program. Tell everybody what wonderful things you do in the world. Well, thank you so much for having me on this amazing uh, podcast that I've heard so much about. Um, so a lot of people know me from my TV show. It's just the number one TV show in the Arab world that deals with social issues. Um, the only TV shows that make more money than we do are the kind of like American Idol types of shows. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting um, dynamic of having that background, but also actually being at heart somebody who loves doing international development. I was the head of the Al-Walid bin Talal Foundation for about 10 years, uh, one of the largest foundations in the Arab world, as well as uh, a serial entrepreneur. I think I am somebody who just loves uh, taking ideas, uh, analyzing them, and then bringing them to life, um, and hopefully making some money out of that. Well, and I really do believe that entrepreneurs and, and business have played such a big role in international development. And of course, at Disruptive CEO Nation, we love social good. We love um, businesses as well as nonprofits that are doing something um, great in the world. Can you give the listeners uh, an example of a project or an affiliation that you were extremely proud of? I'm proud of almost everything that I do just because of that I'm very selected in uh, the people that I uh, mix with. Um, I think that every um, business leader knows if you get the right people on the right bus, um, then things take off. And one of my criteria of working with people is that I feel that they're ethical and I actually uh, feel comfortable in their presence. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't disagree. It just means that I feel comfortable. So even when we disagree, it doesn't become personal. It doesn't become something that actually festers. Um, I am most proud perhaps of my work in the development area um, in education. So um, in helping people uh, who probably would not be able to realize their potential, realize their potential. Um, and so uh, this has led me to actually find founding um, something called uh, a small company called Adri with the co-founder and the CEO, Ali Mazra from uh, New Zealand. 
And the idea behind it, what really made me want to do it is that for about 10 years, I was looking at the foundations of education in the Arab world. And one of them was that there's no transfer of knowledge from outside to the inside of the Arab world. Um, there was a huge problem with translation of academic content, scholarly journals, just real information that allows people to build on research development um, and understand where the world is going beyond the newspaper headlines. Um, and so uh, we developed this uh, company that allows for machine uh, artificial intelligence um, translation. We can translate thousands of pages in three minutes and then have a network of editors improve on our um, uh, translation and give it at minimum price, um, <laughs> really low price to universities, schools, educational systems, uh, journalists, um, and so that they can actually real, really uh, work with up-to-date knowledge. Uh, so this is something that I'm very passionate about. And that took a very long time through many, many different reiterations until I found a for-profit um, uh, model that would work um, and would enable people to invest in it. Uh, we had talked about this, uh, we had talked about this a little bit earlier, um, entrepreneurship in the so uh, and the social impact and the social good. Mm -hmm. um, there are two models, right? There's the model that says, you need to actually be very benevolent and uh, give aid and help people to actually just survive and become maybe lower middle class. And then you can go into the social entrepreneurship, which is probably the Muhammad Yunus, uh, the microfinance um, type of uh, organizations that we hear of, uh, as well as Ashoka. Um, and then you have the Omidar type of uh, thinking, where it is like, no, if there's any social problem, the private sector can resolve it and it should be for profit to incentivize the best ideas, the best people, um, and all these kind of um, uh, dynamics to work and uplift people. And I think I fall in the middle where I think some things can work for profit. I think um, like Adri. Uh, works for that. But then at the same time, I think there's so much need all over the world. And I'm not just talking about the developing world, but even in the US and in Europe, where we have homelessness and we have, you know, yeah. drug rehabilitation, where the, the private sector is not going to enable the, 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 the kind of um, resources that are needed. There's just the resources will always needed will always be more than the resources that are given. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. The um, the resources given are more than is needed, and I I think I want to go back on something that you you said. Um, I do interview. I have some people I need to introduce you to who also work in this, um, you know, this machine learning place on dealing with document management because it, I think it's so important. Um, how do you feel at? at on disruptive CEO notion, we always talk about better business knowledge equals better business results. And you were talking about knowledge transfer on a massive, a massive scale. So um, tell us a little bit about, about more about your relationship with your co-founder, because this was such a big project when you originally launched it and you have other experiences with co-founders. So tell us about that synergy to make this kind of project happen. It's very interesting that you asked this question because uh, 
with co-founders, especially when you start something uh, from the beginning, uh, you if so I didn't know my co-founder until we figured out that we share the same passion for the same uh-huh. reason. Um, and uh, so it's very different than people that you grew up with or you worked with or you you know you you've had some relationships with, uh, which is usually the way that you gather um, uh, uh, co-founders. With this particular co-founder, we didn't know each other, but we had a common mission. And I think that common mission and that real belief in the mission has enabled us to actually overcome a lot of the personality differences that we have. And we are very different. He's a computer scientist. He's very uh, technical in certain things. He is um, uh, personality-wise very different from me. And I we had a little bit of trouble in the beginning gelling. But as I said, having that common purpose and really believing that this common purpose is what both of us uh, really care about allows us to overcome. Now, I can tell you a little bit about uh, uh, co-founders that did not work with me, which is where... <laughs> which is the majority yeah. of co-founders, right? You have problems. Usually, there was an issue with uh, the allocation of responsibilities, and it was usually when we were younger, didn't understand the importance of really ensuring that everybody is uh, aligned on that. The second thing is people dropping out and expecting the same type of um, ownership. Um, So uh, contracts, expectations, um, uh, KPIs, things are really important to set out in the beginning, and which I didn't uh, in in several of my first um, ventures. Uh, I would take people at, uh, you know, their word, uh, not realizing that this is actually part of the entrepreneurship journey. So uh, having more legal resources available for very cheap uh, to entrepreneurs is something important um, to be able to draw the the right contracts that fit different countries and different legal systems. Sometimes you guys come from different places. Yeah. Uh, This is not available, right? What you get is you get a a guy who wrote a book about entrepreneurship saying, um, do it. But nobody actually then writes, where can you get it? at dirt cheap prices um, that co-founders need, you know? <laughs> you yeah, absolutely. Afford- Sorry, I, I, um, I, there's a couple things in there that you said that I think are so wonderful. And, you know, you can't just co-found a business on a handshake and, no. um, and a contract means so many things. Your brother. Not even if it's your brother. That's- Not even if it's your, your brother, brother. Yes. yes. Absolutely. And- and I think this piece that comes through consistently when I speak with founders is about, um, you know, the legal aspect and the legal resources. And even if you can't hire a high-priced attorney, then then get samples from your network, get pull samples from your network, because at least getting a a duplicated contract in place from a good resource is better than nothing. Um, and so I, I really love some of these pieces that you're, you're bringing out, um, and about the mission and and the the KPIs. Um, what, what else with the founder would you give somebody for advice when you're starting down that path with your co-founder? I think also one of the most difficult things is how much, uh, some people get wedded to the original idea, uh, or the original prototype. And it takes a lot of uh, you know, soul searching to move on. And sometimes people hold on too long and it's, it's the business. Um, and so this kind of 
constant communication between co-founders about what's working, what's not working, and where is the thinking leading. So you don't want to surprise your co-founder like suddenly when they say, we need to switch to this. Um, mm -hmm. They may not have gone on the same journey um, as you have uh, in the switch. And the switch may not work, right? You might need to change it again. And so these are like some of the difficulties of entrepreneurship that nobody really talks about. This kind of emotional attachment that you have towards a product, towards an idea, towards a concept. And having three, four, five people actually also change with you um, regarding that concept. And um, there's a lot of uh, anger that comes in. Um, I think there's some very you know, famous uh, examples in, in uh, like, I think with, um, is it Apple, where there were three people, uh -huh. um, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and a third person. And that third person like suddenly realized how much money and all these kind of things are, and the kind of mess that they're going to get into before they actually get the project. And he just pulled out, right? Um, you know, uh, disasterly for him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but this is it. Like you, you kind of have to like the wavelength. You have to kind of ride the same wavelength together. And the only way you can do it is by constantly communicating doubts, issues, um, ideas that come up and not say, well, last week you had a different idea and, and that didn't work out. Kind of like really allow people to be honest and vulnerable and uh, bring out all of the uh, different facets to an issue that they're seeing, whether it takes you somewhere together or it doesn't, but there has to be that kind of space. And, and I don't know, I think maybe women, like I've noticed with women co-founders were a little bit more open about these things, whereas male co-founders kind of like pretend things are like really working okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of a quote from Francisco Weber, who um, is with Cortical um, IO, and he, he's, his number one advice for founders was don't believe your own bullshit. And he's like, he's like, you know, you need to be honest about what you do well and you need to be honest about what you don't. He goes, because the energy around keeping up a false front is just way too great. And, yes. and, and it affects everything. So I think you're, you're right on these pieces. So I will tell you something else that I do, which I, I think because I've, I've, I'm also a social impact investor. So I invest uh, and sometimes you know, as a silent investor. So I don't actually get in, involved in, in any of the operations um, of, of a company. And so as, a, as an investor, what I've done, which I heard somebody say in, a, in some kind of a setting, I think it was a panel, and I just took it really to heart. I try to visit the entrepreneurs in their place of um, action, whatever it is, if it's a home, if it's a garage, if it's, you know, a co-working space, wherever they're at, six times. Wow. Because the first time and the second time, they kind of like have everything, right? They, they kind of like have a story and a narrative and they're telling it to me and the second time they're telling it to me and maybe there's a just a small bit of a crack or like there's a, a bit the third time they get comfortable with you and then they talk a little bit more honestly the fourth time you start seeing the issues uh, that were highlighted in the third meeting actually manifest in the way that they're working together and by the sixth time you kind of know whether these co-founders have what it takes to take that idea and really uh, succeed with it so by the sixth meeting you kind of know whether the co-founders um, problems 
uh, are workable, whether they will be able to, or this will become a toxic type of environment. And the reason is, I used to do one, sometimes like two maximum, um, and make a decision. But I found that this idea of really becoming a little bit more intimate with them uh, has helped me resolve a lot of issues that I had found later on, like a year or two later on in the investment. One of them is that sometimes one of the co-founders is actually not there. So I like to have at least three co-founders personally. Um, I found that the you know they'd be like they were not even part-time. They were moving on to a set. A new position or somewhere else um, and these are the things that you don't realize until people start talking about it and it's an extremely important part of the criteria for my evaluation i don't like one man show or two man show because sometimes with two at the stage that i invest in the, mm-hmm. you know uh, split in decisions it becomes very difficult to manage well, i think that's um, interesting and i think before we started this interview for me that that then also translates to this concept of the pressure on the founder. And I, I think there's a, a couple different aspects and dynamics because in, in modern business today, and, and depending on what country you're in and your culture, you know, sometimes this founder is, is kind of glorified or they're expected to be the, the be all social media presence or so so you've done this evaluation of these founders. And like you said, it takes a bit to, to identify the, the cracks or if they can be in it for the long haul. Um, but what are your thoughts and perspectives on the pressure on this, this founder or this, the CEO? So it's very important to realize that the media has done a huge disservice to entrepreneurs where they build them up to be wonder kids at early stages of their lives. Yeah. And what that happens is that it switches their attention from uh, thinking about their real stakeholders, their clients, their investors, into this public image um, of who they are, right? They need to live up to this public image of being uh, somebody who's successful. And then if that person doesn't have enough experience, if they're not emotionally um, have a lot of resources and support, that actually can destroy them. And you and you see them spiraling. And you know, when I hear these stories about the entrepreneurs who you know become um, have the bro culture, or they are um, perhaps doing um, uh, you know unhealthy habits. Uh, part of it is that they were pushed in. Uh, entrepreneurship is already difficult enough. Starting a business is difficult enough. It is a pressure cooker. And then you add this whole Instagram, Snapchat, media attention um, to it, and it becomes a bomb, a ticking bomb. Um, at the same time, you need media, right? You need media to actually uh, bring uh, attention to uh, a certain product. Uh, you need celebrities to see them. So it is a double-edged sword that it's really, but the onus is really on the media companies to be a little bit more level-headed when they're discussing entrepreneurship. So one of the things I don't like is the 30 under 30, right? Ah, interesting perspective. I don't like 40 under 40. <laughs> <laughs> But 30 under 30, you're getting like a 22-year-old who just graduated from college who maybe had like an interesting idea in, in you know, in, in, in Berkeley or Stanford or, you know, um, in Seattle or whatever. And um, 
starts doing it and he has the network because he went to these universities to be, enable him to actually spread it. And then the media loves this idea of wonder kids, right? Because we love this idea of that our educational system is working, that our, um, uh, that if you're, you know, if it's not about, uh, it's not about privilege, but it's about your, your ideas. Look at this 22 year old who's able to, you know, get um, to where he is at just by um, uh, his ideas or his, his brain power. Um, and then at 25, you find that person is like totally burnt out because he has to keep up. Uh, what, what was it that Frank said? The bullshit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has to keep it up. Yeah. The appearances of being successful. And we all know that there is no way you would have been successful for five years as an entrepreneur, that there were a lot of sleepless nights, that there was a lot of times that you're cash flow was uh, extremely you know um difficult to manage that clients had issues with your products that you got so we have to be a little bit more realistic and i think the media and also because i do work in the media and i try not to participate in it but sometimes you know that that you can see how the momentum builds right one person writes about it in a local newspaper then it gets picked up by a magazine then a celebrity talks about it and then suddenly they're on the wall street journal or uh, forbes um, and, and we keep doing this like every week it's the same cycle you, you can you can just see it you can you can trace it and, and I think we have to be a little bit more aware of it and we have to be a little bit more level headed. yeah I, I think that's really great advice and you know I'm thinking of um, I've had over three years of, of interviewing people now and the ones that I really see hit their mark and scale fast are are really those individuals who had some solid corporate experience underneath them. And it's not saying that I haven't seen, you know, the, the opposite, because I can think of some really great entrepreneurs that started very young in life, but they scaled but they a little, they scaled a little slower. Um, they're, also, they're, not, they're not the norm. Uh, the yeah, average they're not the norm. Successful entrepreneur is over 45, I think, or 40, at, at 45. Somebody yeah. who has gone through the corporate culture, who has worked different jobs, who understands supply chain. Who, so you, and I always like my, with my kids, I say, always learn with somebody else's money. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Somebody else's time, somebody else's money, somebody else's resources. I, I want to go back and tap on this fact because we said to our listeners when, when we introduced you, um, and we've also just kind of talked about media, but that you, you were a media icon and, you know, and, and you, you yourself said that you want to take a little bit of the, the focus off of yourself and put it more on the actual mission and the work of the projects that you're, that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about personal transformation and, and you as a, a leader and what led you to some of those decisions to make those, you know, life transitions? So it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I became a media icon kind of by accident. Um, I'm an extreme introvert, which most people can't imagine, but I am. <laughs> um, I'm somebody who is very at home in the academic world, in in you know, in that kind of setting where you're you're discussing ideas and you kind of uh, people know you by your writing versus by what you look like or what you are wearing. Um, and what happened was, 20 years ago in the Arab world. Um, women didn't have as many opportunities as they do right now. There's been a huge transformation 
especially in Saudi Arabia. I think people read about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the legal reforms for women, the changes, the opportunities that the government actually uh, powerfully pushing for female um, empowerment. Uh, and so at the time that I started media, it was one of the very few ways for women to get power, uh, to be seen, to be treated as equal. Um, and so when the chance came, I took it for that reason. I realized it's a chance that I could actually push forward some of my um, personal convictions and agendas. And it did, it, it, you know, the show gave me a huge platform. And I, I'm very happy to be part of the transformation or setting some of the foundations for it. Um, but what, was, what happened was, uh, like those entrepreneurs that burnt out, it was so not me. I had to, mm. like, live the bullshit (laughs) (laughs) day in and day out and people knowing so much about my life and you know because you you use your life to show examples like with your children to show people that it's not just them it's everybody's problem and and how to solve it and so um the minute that i felt that the air world has moved to a a different level where we will not see our um, rights taken away. Mm-hmm. We have as I say, we reached the threshold, right? Um, I actually quit the show and the show is still going on. I quit it about three years ago uh, because I felt that what I wanted to do, my mission was accomplished and I, it was never really about being on TV, uh, you know? And I, if you see my presence on social media, it is extremely, low just you know making sure that i have i love i love twitter if anybody wants to follow me go to twitter that's where i'm at uh, most of the time because i love writing uh, a lot more than i love and i love the cond- condensation of uh condensing uh, ideas into 280 uh, characters that takes a lot of brevity takes a lot more work than you know uh, long prose forms um and so that was the first transformation i i, I left the media world because I didn't think I'm needed anymore. There's so many uh, changes that have happened. And I really concentrated on a couple of things that I really loved, which is how to make sure that journalists are accountable, how to help journalists get the stories right. And we do this with Midan.com uh, and Midan Labs, um, which is uh, based out of San Francisco and uh, the CEO is advice. Um, an amazing, amazing human being who um, loves building uh, infrastructures for the internet that allows transparency and um, uh, the ability to verify information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to Adri, which is uh, again building the foundational knowledge for the Arab students all over the world um, at extremely cheap prices. Something that I worked on on and off for since 2007. Uh, but which the reiteration of it that is now Adri was in 2016. And then my latest uh, venture, which was uh, COVID related, uh, is, is extremely funny. I'll have to tell you about the story. So in 2019, I had decided that I'm going to take a year off for learning. And I understand most people would love to do this. I was able to have that chance. And I had planned the whole year with every month, either an executive education or an interesting experience that is out of my comfort zone um, so that I would be learning for 12 months. And 
you know, attending interesting conferences all over the world on things that I don't know much about so that I would understand where the 21st century is really going. Um, mm-hmm. and we all read the news and we all, you know, read the economists and we're all reading, you know, Vanity Fair. And so you kind of like get a gist, but I really wanted to go with the experts. And I love conferences because People, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to laugh because I take vacation to go to business conferences and people think I'm crazy. <laughs> no, it's like the best thing in the world because you have these experts who are very yes. confident in their own knowledge, debating the most interesting ideas with like information and data and all these kind of things. And it's not like the BS that you see on news um, uh, cycles where they're getting the most controversial people or whatever for sensationalist news. These are the real experts. So I go to these things and I learn. And I had decided that all year. And so January, I think I did a cutting economics, um, uh, cutting edge economics course at Harvard. Um, I did uh, in February, this very interesting spiritual journey for the YPO, which is the Young President's Organization in Oman. And it was one of those like mind blowing. Um, They brought like masters from all over the world and things that I had no knowledge of. Um, And then uh, in March, I was going for a Google type conference for change makers. And I arrive in Portugal. And they're like, everything is going to close down. You better come back to Saudi Arabia. And I go back to Saudi Arabia. And within like days, I'm, I'm talking to experts and everybody that I knew said, it's going to be like a year, just mm-hmm. understand. So I was like, okay, I need to pull out of all my learning journeys. It was like so heartbreaking, right? This whole year that I had planned, I planned this beautiful, beautiful year as my midlife crisis. <laughs> midlife crisis, personal sabbatical. <laughs> and so in, in around March, uh, when I came back, I started looking for friends who were working on COVID just to understand what they're doing. And a friend of mine, Mustafa Mokas, was working on something called COVID Pass, which became health tech key. And this is a, a revolutionary idea. I mean, everybody's doing health passports, right? Yes. What we did was we're like, there's going to be a lot. We know every entrepreneur, every good business leader knows that there is certain human behaviors that are ingrained and that will happen. And so some of them are bad. And one of them, we know people will cheat. We didn't realize the anti-vaxxers or these kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, movements, but we were thinking that even people who believed in everything about COVID, if they want to go see somebody, they're going to, and they can't uh, get a, a positive, a negative test, they might lie, or they don't have time, or it's too expensive to do, or whatever, there's going to be a significant proportion of people traveling all over the world and within countries who are not going to be honest about their tests. So, what we did was we went in and we had already through another company that Mustafa owns um, a, a huge uh, network of labs that we had UI audit to ensure mm-hmm. that the machines, the people that are there are who they are and who they say they are. And we installed our software in them to ensure that everybody who says or is getting on an airplane um, and says I was negative or I had this vaccine or whatever, it is exactly what they said. And so to lower the fraud in international travel, and we're already operational in several countries, Iraq, Kuwait, um, we're signing with Indonesia, we're working in the in the US, hopefully with uh, SDC, and uh, looking at ways of saying this virus or other viruses are going to be parts of our lives. And we have to make sure that we don't take people at their word, 
because there's going to be people who will lie. There, there, yeah, there absolutely are. Come to the United States and, yeah. and we know that's true. And and I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll say oh, this, I was, just, I was just in Germany. I just traveled to Germany for business and I was so excited to get on an airplane and use my passport. It was like so exciting. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think what, what you're saying, because one, as a civil society, we need to, we need this international travel. We need the movement as, as, yes. as a global economy that's interdependent. We need this yes. movement. We need movement and we need um, uh, to trust that this movement will be virus, whether it's COVID or other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to have that in order to live our lives normally. Well, tell our um, listeners again, which, what is this, this company? So it's called Health Tech Key. Okay. And we're hearing a lot of great news coming out uh, in the press release through media <laughs> uh, very soon. Uh, but it's really the only, I mean, there's other people now that are doing the labs, but their labs are not um, uh, uh, verified. Uh, people will still be able to pay bribes in certain countries to get the testing or um, and not pay, a, you know, because a lot of, in, in some countries, it's actually quite expensive and people mm-hmm. will not be able people to uh, travel with the PCR test um, uh, costs. Uh, in some places, it's $150 per person, right? So it's like seven, $800. You're, you're just not going to put that in to travel from uh, one place to another. Um, and yeah, and, uh, and I hope that people who are interested in if they want their lab networks to join ours, to contact me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Please send me a message, um, uh, you know, uh, or to if of of certain events companies or places that really want to ensure that every single person that comes through to their place of business actually is 100% uh, verified, please contact us as well. Uh, This is an exciting business opportunity, but I started it because I realized that I had put everything in my life in 2019 and I had a year. (laughs) So you needed a new project. (laughs) I I just, I mean, like, I, I just couldn't sit at home, do nothing. Well, we could ask you so many more questions, but we're actually at our at our time, and so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna close with this. I like to ask my guests, and and you have your your interests and your fingers into so many different things. But if if we came back and, and spoke with you in another three years, what do you hope the story is? What do you, what do you hope um, for you personally or for any of your projects that that you hope is the story down the road? So there's several things that I think are important for my projects. I think with Health Tech Key, it's going to be that we are really feeling safe uh, and traveling and going to universities and going to schools without this idea of uh, constant um, third rolling and fourth rolling of vaccines. You can actually mm-hmm. know whether you are at risk or not just by having a test and um, that works out well and travel goes back to normal and the economic development of you know so many countries that has been severely affected um actually ends um because it, it's you know only three percent of all uh, africans are vaccinated right now and their economy is decimated in so many places it's just heartbreaking so i would love for that to work and help resolve that part of the global uh problem uh, for this company on a personal level on a personal level, what I would love to see is more VCs investing 
uh, appropriate amounts of money in female-led businesses or businesses that uh, deal with uh, female issues. Uh, we have a lot of press on some, you know, like the think panties or, you know, the Spanx or things like that. But I think there's so many different solutions that are coming up from females that are not being funded, that are not being funded uh, enough. And that the VCs that everybody's talking about that are, uh, you know, geared, toward, geared towards women are just not enough for all these amazing women, amazing ideas and amazing businesses that deal with female um, uh, challenges or female points of view, whether they are led by a female or not. Uh, so this personally for me is a very important step for empowerment, having the financial resources for female centric uh, and centered ideas to flourish. I think that is, that is fantastic. And, and I like to talk to, um, I talk to a lot of female entrepreneurs coming up in, in various aspects of the tech space. And it is difficult to listen to sometimes the amount of pitches they have to do to be, get to their level of being fully funded or, um, you know, just different hoops they have to go through. And, and so I love that as your personal goal. I'll, I'll, I'll support that one as, as well. Well, it has been um, absolutely delightful to speak with you. Tell people again, how to reach out to you and connect with you if they want to follow you or learn more information. So um, if you look at the spelling of my name, that is exactly the spelling of my name for my Twitter handle and uh, my last name. So I'm at, at Abu Suleiman, uh, at Abu Suleiman. And uh, the best way of connecting with me is through Twitter um, and also LinkedIn. I'm there in LinkedIn. Uh, if you have uh, a VC that would love to support one of my projects, whether or a foundation that would love to support one of my projects about education uh, in Africa and the Arab world, please connect to me. Uh, if you're somebody who's uh, from the Arab world and need a little bit of mentorship, uh, I'd be happy to either help or guide you towards somebody who can help you. Thank you so much. Um, and to our listeners, if there was something that was interesting in this interview that you think somebody else needs to hear, please pass it along. As always, we were really appreciate if you give us a positive review, head over to Podchaser or go to your favorite podcast site. And if there is a disruptive or innovative CEO that you think we need to be speaking to, send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until then, keep your eye on the future. Muna, thank you again for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview. It's always lovely to have somebody who shares a lot of the same ethos. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.